moments in our life where we, in a sense, wake up and sort of look back or gaze upon the life we were living and uh, we can feel shocked in a way that uh, how, how oblivious, how caught up in habits, how disconnected we've been living. And a, v- a really useful kind of spiritual urgency can arise like, oh honey, don't do that. You know, don't live on automatic pilot because you might just find that you don't wake up again. You know how it is. Like with any kind of addictive pattern, we see it with our friends, of course, less likely to see it in ourselves. You know, where they just get absorbed in some way of being, some combination of patterns, and then they can disappear for a while. They're so in that mode And we have interactions with them, but it sort of feels like we're interacting with that pattern. Where did my friend go? You know, but they're in that sort of pattern or that mode. And this is not a bad characterization of our lives most of the time, that we're so distracted by distractions that we remain unaware that we're distracted. Even the question, am I distracted? Or the question, you know, am I seeing things clearly? Is my way of being, my way of being in the world, trustworthy or wholesome? Those questions don't arise. In a way, that, that itself is astounding, like how rarely that question has shown up in our lives. Like, I mean, a really honest, how am I doing? I mean, really, how am I doing? I mean, how many times do we ask us a kind of question that comes out of a willingness to really look and start over if that's what, you know, the conclusion is on looking deeply, like, how am I doing? Is this the kind of life that's worth living? Is this the kind of life that when lived this way, the way I'm living it, ends up having, you know, ends up with enough wisdom so when dying happens or when some great loss or some challenging experience shows up, that this heart has the resources to be there in a graceful and useful and kind way. Am I gaining the skills, the insight, the wisdom and compassion that will allow me to be skillful no matter how things unfold for me all the way through life? And if not, you know, then it might be a good time to wonder, well, as the Buddha says, when people wake up to the reality of suffering and the reality of uncertainty and the reality of insecurity and vulnerability, they do one of two things. Either they just complain or scream, oh poor me, you know, some version of that, the Buddha says, or they have enough balance to ask, well, is there anybody who knows anything about, it, about suffering? 
Is there anything I can learn in here, out there? Any pointing out instructions, right? So we get curious. Or we complain or blame or get lost in some pattern of, oh, poor me. Why me? One of my earlier teachers, Michelle McDonald-Smith, long-time IMS teacher, but she talked once, this is a long time ago, about visiting her 90-some-year-old aunt who was in the hospital and just found out she had some untreatable something, maybe cancer, I forget now, but... And when Michelle walked in the room, I guess she had a pretty close relationship with this relative of hers. She walks in the room, this older woman, in her, well into her 90s, and the first thing she says, why me? Like it would be surprising for a 92 or a 93-year-old person to get sick with a, you know, incurable whatever. That's how we think, you know, like... So, um, you know, whether you take the Buddha's uh, life and teachings and the legends as sort of history or just teachings, right, stories that are useful for teaching, doesn't matter. I think for our sake, because we're not going to prove anything, like what can we learn? So there's this uh, interesting stories, backstory to the first talk the Buddha gave after his own deep insight under the Bodhi tree. And um, so he had his big awakening. Um, having realized that he was out of balance, and, and his first teaching was really addressing that imbalance to his former colleagues that he had sort of left behind because they were really into this more sort of assertive, masculine but off-balance approach to spiritual practice. Like, yeah, I mean, it's true. Like, you can look at the world. It doesn't take much for us to, you know, even spending one day a little bit out of the loop, you know. And if I had, instead of the altar, a TV here, and I played you probably seven minutes of advertisements, you know, a very appropriate disgust of consumerism would arise. Like, oh my God, I'm done with that. And then we could, you know, if we talked about it, we could like rally this sort of conviction, the self-righteous conviction. No more consumerism. No more plastic, no more packaging, you know, one pair of pants, you know, and kind of get fundamentalist about it, you know, and then like, well, how do we convince the rest of the world? And they don't, if they're not willing to follow us, we're going to have to get rid of them. <laughs> we could become, you know, it could get pretty ugly pretty quick. This sort of, and this is that asceticism, you know, this fixation on asceticism. Because it's pretty easy when we get a little distance to see how broken culture is. You know, just, I just mentioned consumerism, but there's so many other things I could mention, like, how we treat people who are different than us, whether it's class or body size or age or race or whatever the spectrum of difference might be. And, you know, that sort of um, clan mentality. So uh, the first, often the first 
spiritual instinct is a little distorted. It's like, I want to get out of here. The world is not to be trusted. It's a mess. So then you buy your cabin in the woods of Wisconsin, you know, or you move into your little, you know, your little bubble. You know, Madison is its own little bubble, I'm sure, and, uh, or whatever, where you're somehow, like, can't be around the rest of the world. So the Buddha noticed that in his own mind, in his own practice, right? They were doing pretty extreme ascetic practices, according to the stories, the legends. And he realized, I'm just getting weak, physically weak, doing these extreme practices, and that's affecting my mind. I don't see how this ends well, right? I don't see how this helps. And then when he sort of realized, like, you know, because he had a real integrity, and if something's not working, it's not working. And the point was to develop an understanding that he didn't have, not to kind of be a fundamentalist about asceticism. So he changed, and then the people he were with, he was with, you know, thought he had gone soft, so they left him. And uh, is that sun bothering anybody? We could shut the shades. Is it okay? Okay. So he left his friends, and he, and it turned out to be a really powerful correction in his practice, where basically he realized indulging in sense pleasures is quite limited. But it's just as crazy to somehow, as long as we're a sensitive being with a body, you know, with a life, it doesn't make sense to hate life or to reject life, to reject sense experience. Right? It doesn't make sense. We're a sensitive being. We're a sensual being. So after his awakening, after his deep insights under the Bodhi tree, a few months later, he tracked down his friends because he had something to share. He wanted to let him know what he had come to understand when his mind came back into balance. He had some deep insight. And the first thing he said was this correction. And this is that middle way. So I thought I'd just share a little bit about that because it was in the title for this retreat. So, <laughs> yeah, what, what do we mean? What does the Buddha mean by the middle way? Because it isn't that, like, let's cut it down the middle, sort of halfway between two extremes. It's really more rejecting extremes. It's not that, and it's not this. It doesn't mean it's in the middle between them. It's neither of those orientations. So one orientation is, and this is, remember, this can get really uh, subtle. So when we say we have a sensual orientation, It doesn't mean that we think happiness comes from having a Hummer and living in a gated community and, you know, using technology to make our body better, you know, a different shape and becoming a bionic human being where we have sort of retrofitted, done better than nature could do, teeth that glow in the dark and, (laughs) you know... Hair, hair that's dark or whatever light or whatever color we like and luxurious and, and on and on like that. It just means, so the, seeing that even subtle forms of sensuality, like having a good sense of, fr- a good set of friends, I mean, that's relatively wholesome desire to have good friendship, 
But to see that it's limited, it's not going to save you, right? If you have sort of unwholesome dispositions, anger, for example, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a good set of friends, you're still going to act out your anger if that's the tendency of your mind. Or if your tendency is to be greedy, you're going to want more good friends. It doesn't matter if you have a great group of friends. So even very subtle, very wholesome desire for central experience, like the perfect cabin that uses no energy, built only out of willow branches, (laughs) and the sap of pine trees to make the leaves stick, and birch bark stick to the outside of your, you know, and it's just perfect. And the decaying creates enough heat to keep it warm all winter. (laughs) You know, and it's just perfect. But being attached, being dependent on even like a wholesome vision of not having any ecological, you know, uh, creating any ecological destruction in how we live, even that attachment is suffering. You know, because then if anybody were to build a normal house or a regular house near us, we'd feel so offended. Like, how dare they running their generator or, you know, whatever. So the Buddha is saying that thinking that sensuality is going to save us is a cause for suffering. And he's saying thinking that rejecting sensuality is going to save you or be a cause for freedom, not going to happen. So it's not about like, and this is two of the three kinds of craving, or really three, right? Craving is broken down into craving for a nice sense experience. Could be even a very wholesome, refined sense experience. But the craving, the dependence on it, is a cause for suffering. Craving to become somebody is still in the realm of sensuality. Like somebody who has something that I don't have. And craving to be done with sensuality. I want out. It's too complicated always needing more, wanting more. I'm ready to be done. Get me out of here. Whether it's suicide or just becoming a minimalist or whatever, that, however that gets expressed, the Buddha is saying, well, both of those are stressful. And there's a middle way, which is not sensuality and not about rejecting sensuality. And it's sort of interesting, you know, as a sensual being, right? We're very sensitive. We see sights, we hear sounds, we smell smells, we taste tastes, we touch, we feel the touches, the warmth, the coolness, right? And so much of our ordinary happiness is really on that level. Should we not let that happiness in? It's an interesting question. You're going to have dinner soon, right? So presumably it will be as good as lunch. And uh, what do we do with the delight? Or just, you know, those of you who are enjoying the sunshine, what do you do with that? Or the sunset? What do we do with beauty and goodness, sensual beauty and goodness that comes our way? 
being around a friend, being hugged, receiving pleasant physical affection, having a car that works, you know, that starts even on a cold morning, lying in bed where we feel warm enough and safe enough. These are central. What is the way to relate where we're not cultivating dependence, which is stressful, but we're not rejecting it? And the the way the Buddha outlines this way, so that was the first part of this talk to his friends. He clarified, you know, he names the middle way as he didn't describe it yet, but he says it's not the path of sensuality. Thinking, getting the right sense experience is going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness. There is a very real happiness of gratification when we get a nice experience, but it's just limited. But it, it kind of bursts forth and then it ends. Like lunch for some of you, maybe the peach cobbler for some of you, with the whipped cream for some of us. <laughs> you know, it was delightful for me. But, but even something like that, you know, it sort of was there, you know. And even, I think it, a lot of it was gone before the last bite, even how nice it was. And what's interesting as we pay attention to the actual gratification of sense experience, a lot of it is in the anticipation, knowing that the peach cobbler was there, was as pleasant, almost as pleasant, maybe in moments a little bit more pleasant than the eating of the peach cobbler. The idea that there is peach cobbler. (laughs) right? Just like the idea that the bed is there for the sleep tonight. It's a really nice idea. It's a pleasant, sensual idea. Even though it's just an idea of a pleasant, sensual experience. After a few minutes in bed, it's just kind of the same old thing. It loses. But the idea that I'm going to be able to take my clothes off and put my PJs on and lie there without having anything I have to do for a while... You know, that, that all. So even our thoughts of sensuality is considered a sensual experience. So human beings generally were obsessed with sensuality because we think that that gratification is all there is in life. Even though, you know, a lot of us more reflective folks, you know, who aren't overwhelmed and struggling just to survive, we know, you know, if we if someone actually asked us, like, do you really expect that to make you happy in a lasting way? We know the right answer. No, it's not going to make... But it's all I got, you know? And hopefully before that gratification or delight goes away, I'll have another idea of something I like and want and is reasonably... I can reasonably expect to have it. And that's what we call privilege, right? Having enough sensual delights, enough sensual comforts to keep us distracted so we don't clearly see the limitations of sense experience. You know, until something dramatic happens. We get really sick or something happens to us that shocks us to realize that whatever we were depending on wasn't actually dependable. Like our partner wants a divorce or is dying or, you know, Something out of the box happens. What we think is out of the box, but actually 
upon reflection, we should have realized it's just a matter of time. And all the ways, you know, when we get burnt by those bigger things, then we, then we start thinking that the way forward is to have a mistrustful relationship about sensuality. Like, I don't trust. I'm not going to let beauty in anymore because it just goes away. I can't really own it. I can't really nail it down and make it mine. So I'm not really going to open my heart to another human being. I'm not going to let anybody in. I'm not going to really feel the real gratification of moments of joy and comfort and beauty because it's ephemeral. Why enjoy the sunset? It's just going to end. Don't even bother to taste your food at dinner. You see this, like you see it in the monastic tradition, like one of the, the trainings for the nuns and monks is they, you know, they have a bowl that's not so different than this, and all the food goes in there. You know, someone might put in a dessert, and someone might put in a curry, and someone might put in this and that. And then some of the more austere monastics, you know, they're stirred up. <laughs> Fish sauce, and sweets, and this and that. <laughs> Like, and it actually, it's a very, it's a really good training, you know, as a training to train your mind not to expect, not to imagine that the tastiness of your dinner is ultimately going to change your life or deliver anything except moments of temporary joy. That's what it is. So if you don't feel like you've gotten it, got figured out that lesson, then, yeah, maybe in a way where no one else can see you, then tonight, just kind of, <laughs> you know. It's like sometimes I say, if all we had was oatmeal, cold oatmeal, day-old cold oatmeal, <laughs> with just enough smatterings of whatever we needed to get the right nutrition, right, so that we would, the body would be okay enough, and to just live off of that for a while. Like sometimes people will not put any salt in their food. You know, it doesn't affect, you know, nutritionally, the food will be great, but all of a sudden it's like not interesting. And it just, it just helps to illuminate. If you want it to be illuminated, then you can play, I think that's the right word, play with these kinds of trainings to kind of get a sense of Oh yeah, look at that. I was really, I have, I had gotten under the habit of really being dependent on these sense pleasures, even though they're not to be counted on. Uh, okay, that's good to know. And then any way that you're rejecting or getting kind of this sort of fundamentalist view, this nihilistic fundamentalism, like nothing matters, nothing's worth having, it's sort of like the monastic, the underlying um, quality of monasticism, but on steroids, you know, where it gets really, the shadow kind of comes forward, where it's like anti-life. And to, to realize what a trap that is. Oh, that's not the way. And that was the correction the Buddha saw that needed to happen in his own practice. Right? And so... 
symbolically, you know, after he left his friends, there was some kind of <clears throat> person who was hurting the animals who saw him, saw that he was famished, and brought him, you know, what was a delightful dish of the kind of rice pudding, sugar and cream and really cooked rice that becomes kind of creamy and maybe a little cardamom and a little bit of toasted almond and what else do they put in raisins maybe or something like that, little chunks of fruit, and serve that to the Buddha until he got healthy, right? So it's like that, you know, as a story, it's like not being afraid of something beautiful and delightful and pleasant because that's all it is. Why would we be afraid of that? Part of this was this insight the Buddha had of his mind coming into balance as a child, sitting when he was like four or something like that, and he was born into evidently sort of a wealthy um, fiefdom, and his family was, his father and mother were the sort of chiefs of this little fiefdom in northern India. And so in the springtime, it was sort of the uh, you know, first day of plowing. It was a festival day where they'd have a feast and the head of the clan, you know, would do the ceremonial first plowing. And they put the little kid under the an apple tree or something, rose apple, I think it was. And he's just sitting there and everyone is, you know, festival day, there's probably music, everyone's happy, they're not working, they're going to have a feast. And the little kid's just sort of tuned in to the happiness, and falls into a very beautiful mind state, jhana, like where in this little kid's mind, heart, no greed, anger, and delusion. Right, so he's just delighting in the happiness. No fear, no greed. And anyway, so here's the Buddha now at 35 or so, 36 years of age, having done all kinds of extreme ascetic practices, bumping his head up against the wall, not getting anywhere, not seeing what he hasn't seen before. And this dream or this memory comes to mind of himself as a little boy and how natural and beautiful the happiness was. Just, it wasn't that he thought the happiness of the festival day was going to last forever. He wasn't thinking, probably, or not thinking much, but he was just paying attention to the beauty and the goodness inside, outside, right? And so his mind wasn't... This is like such a simple, important teaching for us on retreat. It really matters what we pay attention to. So if your knee hurts, doesn't mean you should always be paying attention to the knee pain. You should pay attention to the knee pain if you can see something there that's insightful or useful. But if all you're doing is developing gloom by looking at your knee pain, then you're getting really good at being gloomy. Is that what you want? No. Because we have, it's like in Buddhist terms, it's a karmic choice each moment what we're paying attention to. That's as karmically potent as anything we're doing as human beings. That unconscious mostly, unfortunately, choice of what we think is relevant to pay attention to in this moment. Like we could be paying attention, we could just be noticing not so much like, what's he saying? What's Because that can be a little tight, but just that we're all here together, 
and the sun is setting and dinner time's coming. You know, just the, this is not a bad way to spend a day. Just the wholesomeness of how it is right now. Like to be aware of that. It's not so different than the plowing day way back when that the little baby Buddha-to-be was experiencing. Yeah, this is a pretty wholesome little setting that we're all in right now. And we could be noticing that, and then that has an effect on the mind. And this is what we might call a wholesome way of relating to sensuality. Noticing how when conditions are pleasant, greed, anger, delusion naturally fall away. So what we're noticing isn't like, oh, I hope this pleasant experience of being here together doesn't change. That would be tight. That would be a cause for suffering. But noticing how in this moment there's no need for greed, anger, and delusion, distraction. Really noticing the equanimity, the non-attachment. And then when something interrupts that, then what do we notice? Oh, look at suffering, attachment, grasping, fear, whatever it is, whatever its nature is. See how that comes in. And that's the next insights, right? Oh, there is suffering. There's attachment, right? Things are tight. What just happened? Like you might be sitting here, relatively speaking, basking in the wholesomeness of just being here and the simplicity of the moment, feeling relatively good and aware that the heart's relatively relaxed. And then a painful memory arises, you know, or some old doubt, I'll never get this, or God, I wish you see somebody in the room who's younger than you, you go, God, I should have started this practice decades ago. Why did I, you know, live my life the way I lived my life? And then we can become a suffering person very quickly. We can go, we always think that when we're in a really good place, that suffering is miles away, or when we're in a real, really dark place, difficult place, we think happiness is miles away. But the more we watch our heart and mind, we see that there's never distance. The distance between happiness and unhappiness is really no distance at all. Like if we're really suffering and it feels like happiness is miles away, that could really move our heart like, oh honey, you're really hurting. I care about that. And, and that's a beautiful, immediately that's a beautiful state of mind. Compassion is an enlivened and beautiful quality of the heart. It's not a painful. I mean, the awareness that compassion depends on being in the proximity of suffering, my suffering or somebody else's, but the actual mind state, heart state of compassion is quite beautiful. Right? So that, that gives you a little sense of that turning. And that's really what the, the Buddha did. He first said, okay, there's this middle way Drop the obsession as if sensuality is going to save you. Drop the absurd obsession that somehow you can run away from sensuality or that rejecting it is anything but grim. Right? Drop those two fixations because they don't deliver. They're just a stressful fixation. 
that hunger that somehow the next or the right central experience is going to make my day forever. Not going to happen. Or that somehow I can reject life. Like there's an escape from sensuality. Where would that be? You know, here we are with this. I mean, it's kind of funny even to think that somehow as a sensitive person I could get away from sensitivity. And then he says, so get interested in the experience of stress itself. Oh, yeah. So we're, the freedom, instead of being driven by the suffering, right, on and on and on, either to, re, to run from it, which is the rejection of sensuality, or to think that there's some experience that's going to fix the suffering or make it go away, Instead of that, it's kind of a bold, provocative move. Move The Buddha says, we'll get interested in suffering. So he suggests three insights. This is for those who know the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. It's really a set of 12 insights that just arise, arise because we've trained the heart to be interested and relaxed with the way it is, right? And so when we're relaxed and interested, we're going to have lots of moments, little big moments, all day long when we're sitting, when we're walking, when we're moving around. Well, look at This is suffering, right? So we see in a very direct, but now in a more open way, less personal, right? It's like we're observing suffering as a natural phenomena that's arising right here in this body-mind thing. Me, right? Oh, look at that. Suffering. There is suffering. And then right with that kind of fresh look, the first insight is really, oh, oh, this, this is relevant. It's like seeing that it's a teacher. Like, I don't really understand this whole dynamic of suffering. This is a shock to the mind because we think we're an expert on suffering. Because, truthfully, we have experienced a lot of suffering. Even the most privileged person in the room has had what, for you, feels like plenty of suffering. And even if you think you're someone who hasn't experienced suffering, you've had plenty of suffering. Part of your suffering is thinking you haven't experienced it. Because that's not an easy thought to maintain in a world with this much suffering. Like, for example, if you feel like you haven't been had any suffering in your life. Think about how much work it is to pretend that other people's suffering isn't impactful for you. Somehow isn't landing in some way. Right? Like it's not my problem or not, you know. Yeah, I don't have to feel anything. So one way or another, you know, realizing that Suffering is relevant. It's almost like the beginning, the path is beginning to open up. And it's not a grim path. It's like, remember what I was saying about interest. It's very enlivening when our heart is proximate to areas where we know that we don't know. That there's something here to see and learn. Right? And probably more than anything, like if those of you who raise children or work with kids, learning is joyful. 
And school's not joyful necessarily. You know, a lot of our school systems somehow have masterfully taken all the joy out of learning. <laughs> I'm not sure there's any learning or some. But anyway, I used to be a school teacher. And, uh, but anyway, learning, you know, is very enlivening for human beings. Human beings were designed to learn and to be delighted by learning. So when we meet a teacher that we've been missing for so long, oh my God, they're suffering and it's relevant. So there's sort of two insights. One is like, oh my God, this is this objective look at suffering arising here in this moment, in this body-mind. Right? So now we have some space, some perspective. Oh yeah, this is what it's like to suffer. And, oh my God, it's relevant. This is all new territory. Right? So that's the second part of that insight, like it's relevant. And then the third insight here in the first noble truth is suffering has been understood, meaning we've become a devoted student with a lot of integrity, and we figured out how to show up to whatever suffering is showing up in our life right now. We've actually expressed this, this integrity of interest and calm. We need both of those two ingredients, right? Because if we're really in a hurry to understand the suffering, the trying hard, the being in a hurry, distorts our understanding, our intimacy. So we have to be really tranquil, like however long it takes, however intense this gets. I really, I really want to see what needs to be seen. I really want to feel what needs to be feel, felt here until there's nothing left to open to. And that shifts us into the second set of insights, which I'll talk about tomorrow evening. But again, Right now, the, the key is getting a sense, each of us in our own lives, like when we're being, just being honest and not judgmental, when, even in our meditation practice, we're basically pursuing a nice sense experience. I just want to get calm. I had a lot of calm once in a sit, and I just want to get back there. You know, or I just want to figure this thing out. It would feel so good if I could just figure this problem out in my life. And a lot of our meditation, a lot of our retreat time is this pursuit of sense experience. Or just get comfortable. You know, all the little adjustments we could do. It'd be nice, you know, if we had video cams on each person. And then that night, before you go to bed, you have to sort of watch the edited version of all the little attempts to get comfortable. (laughs) And it would break our heart open like, oh, honey, you think getting comfortable is going to be an end in itself, but it, it lasts for 15 seconds and then you're not comfortable anymore. And on and on. And that's, you know, when you see people who can sit still, it's not like they're not, unco- that they're, it's not that they're comfortable, it's just they realize, they've made peace with not being comfortable. They realize that any adjustment will make them comfortable for a short period of time. So why bother? So I'm just going to hold my body still, because there's some comfort. It's a more pervasive, resonant comfort, and not chasing temporary comfort, right? So just being okay with discomfort is actually a kind of comfort. Just staying put. 
So just finding this middle way, catching how giving up doesn't work, how pursuit of sense comforts, sense experience, is never ends, never ends. Because we just get good at wanting something else. So if we're wanting something and we pursue that, in the end we'll get a little gratification, but we'll be even better at wanting something. And we'll find something to want. Because we've been practicing wanting something, thinking that getting something is going to be meaningful. And it is, but it's we never catch how limited the gratification is. So we always misinterpret the next time we're craving something, we misinterpret what the impact of getting the experience of gratification will be. Yeah, it will be nice, but then it will end. What else to do with my time? Because this is a hard turning. Well, you could get interested in suffering. You could become a very devoted student, not of the idea of suffering, but of the actual experience. And you know, doesn't mean you shouldn't be comfortable because you know the best, and I'll end with this comment, the best place to see suffering See if you can, some of you pros out there, people who have been practicing for a few decades, know this. The best place to have a clear sense of suffering, see what you haven't seen about the phenomena of suffering. Any reflections? Where are you best able to have insight into the nature of suffering? Anybody brave enough to speak up? Yeah, Tony. Yeah, because when you're not suffering, right, both when it ends, but when you're, when there's very little suffering, right, it's really gone into the background, and then suffering shows up, it really stands out. So that samadhi that I talked a lot about this morning, that alert and relaxed, the beautiful balance as that develops, that's very pleasant. And as that dominates the mind, the heart, that very bright, very alert, very interested, and totally chilled out, serene, just receiving, open. That's a very pleasant, and a lot of the ordinary level of suffering is really in the background when there's some samadhi, some of that stability of heart and mind. So then when something triggers suffering, you see it in all of its colors. You see what it is. It's real, it's impactful, but it's also not self. It's not personal. It's just nature. It's also something that comes and goes. And we learn how to relate to it. And that's really what's meant by these first three insights. Oh, there's suffering. It's relevant. It's my teacher. I've been looking for you. You know, as if we'd put our head down, like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. I want to learn. And then the third insight is the graduation ceremony. For this moment of suffering, or these moments, I've completely opened, I've completely learned what could be learned here. Right? I've been a good student. And there's a sense of completion. Nothing left to see or feel. No doors and windows still closed. This phenomena that I'm calling suffering completely express itself. 
without any friction or resistance, without me hurrying it up because I didn't want it to be done, or trying to manage it. Because right? we were just that space of relax, relaxation and clarity. And then the dukkha, the suffering, the whatever that the little drama was, it just presented itself and then ceased, as all things do. I mean, think about that. How many times have you been in a really difficult place and then it ceased? That gives us confidence that when, when we're in a pretty good place and suffering arises, instead of freaking out, we can be a good student. Because we have so much evidence that suffering arises and then that it ceases. Otherwise, we'd have an incredible traffic jam of suffering if it didn't cease. Because we've had so many moments of suffering, but where is all that now? It ceased. You might think, oh, no, no, it's still there, and then you're like behind the scenes regenerating it. Because you want to be true that it's still there. But no, it actually ceases. And this is, I think, maybe what Tony was saying, like noticing it when it ceases. Oh, yeah, there's suffering and there's suffering. And that's more what I'll talk about tomorrow in the afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.